You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Good morning, church. Turn your Bibles to Acts 22, Acts chapter 22. If you'd like to mark your Bibles, we're also going to be in 1 Peter 3 and Romans 6. No pressure to mark it, but if you're one of those people that likes to prepare ahead, I'm just giving you the upfront. Acts 22 is really, I think, an appropriate place for us to begin this morning on this particular morning because originally this morning, I'd planned on uh, starting a small sort of late summer mini-series that we've titled Ultimate Road Trip, which is going to cover the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul through the latter portion of the book of Acts. That was initially the plan. Uh, I decided to push it a week, so we'll start that next week. We're still going to do it. Uh, it'll carry a little bit into September, but, but uh, we pushed it because after... Uh, The number of baptisms we had last week and uh, certainly this week and after last week's message on communion, I felt like it made sense to come back and do a second message this time on the ordinance of baptism. Now, some of you may be wondering, what's the connection between the two? Right? Why does a message on communion last week require a message on baptism this week? And that is because both of them are ordinances given to the church by Jesus Christ. Christ gave two important ordinances to the church for the church. One is an initiation or sort of a right into the Christian life, which is the ordinance of baptism, which we just practiced this morning. And then one of them is a, uh, to be regularly practiced to remember, we talked about that last week, the things that we remember in communion. And so it just makes sense to me to push the miniseries one extra week, spend a little more time talking about this second ordinance. And again, like last week, there's so much more that I want to say about the topic of baptism than I actually have time for. And, and maybe at some point in the future, we'll do a whole series on these practices uh, of ordinances and, and the different aspects of them, because there are a lot of aspects that we're not going to be covering. So for example, this morning, uh, we're not going to be talking about the modes of baptism. Uh, there is uh, some churches practice sprinkling. Some churches like us practice full immersion. Uh, we won't talk about the difference between pedo-baptism or infant baptism uh, versus credo-baptism or believer's baptism. All I'll say this morning about both of those things is this, that at City on a Hill, what we believe is credo-baptism, believer's baptism, by full immersion, which is why you see what you see here, fully immersed baptisms upon profession of faith. That's what we believe the Bible teaches, and I think a good historical case can be made to support that. What I want to do this morning is not talk about those aspects, but really talk about the pictures in baptism. In in other words, when someone is baptized, as many were this morning, the, the practice of baptism symbolizes something. It's a picture of something. It's rather a picture of many things. And so I want us to walk through a few passages in the New Testament that that speak to baptism and try to understand what pictures are painted for us when we watch someone go under the water in baptism. Because I believe that these pictures are important in informing and forming our theology of the practice as a whole. When we understand the pictures to which baptism point us, we end up with a fuller understanding of really what it means as a practice. And so let's waste no time. We have a lot to unpack here. Hope you had your coffee this morning. Uh, and, and maybe a little something to eat because we are going to be moving through the scripture uh, pretty, pretty heavily. Stay with me. You're all theologians. I believe in you. Some of you are like, who, who, me? Who? No, certainly not. You are. Let's do this. Let's begin with 
a picture of a disciple being commissioned. A picture of a disciple being commissioned. This is Acts chapter 22. Um, While you're turning there, if you haven't gotten there already, let me give you a little bit of context of what's happening here. So in Acts 22, this is a testimony of sorts. So every Christian has a testimony, right? A story of how they came to faith in Christ. In Acts 22, uh, we find the Apostle Paul's testimony. He is about to tell his testimony to a mob of angry Jewish people. Some of them were soldiers. Uh, It included a tribunal of high-ranking officers. He had been arrested at this point. In fact, uh, in Acts 21, if you go back a little bit, they think he's an Egyptian and that he has recently stirred up this revolt wherever he is at. And so Paul asks for a moment to address the crowds so that he can quell this notion that he's this Egyptian revolutionary. In Acts 22, verse 1, It says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And then look at verse two. He says, and when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. They were like, wait, hold on a minute. An Egyptian wouldn't know Hebrew. What what does this guy have to say? And, And so now he has their attention. And he begins to share his testimony. Verses three through five, uh, he talks about his Jewish heritage. He talks about how he was a Pharisee. He was trained under one of the most famous rabbis of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Uh, He says he was a persecutor of the way. The way, by the way, is a, wow, I can't say that. The way, incidentally, uh, is a name for Christianity in its earliest stages, Uh, The way, coming off of of Jesus' words in John's gospel, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, They were known as followers of the way. Paul says, I was a persecutor of the way. Verses 6 through 11 talks about the Damascus Road conversion where Jesus blinds him and he's told to go into the city of Damascus and wait for further instructions. That whole story, by the way, is is first told in Acts chapter 9. So if you want to go back and read the original, uh, that's where you find it. Verses 12 through 16 is where our primary text is. Uh, it, It introduces another character by the name of Ananias. And this is a man that Jesus told Uh, Paul was coming to prepare for him and to pray over him when he arrives that he would regain his sight. Now, Ananias knew who Paul was, Saul, at the time. He was a persecutor of the way. Ananias was very clear about who this man was. And so there's a little bit of timidity there. Not sure I really want him to regain his sight, right? Uh, Verses 12 through 15, it says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Verse 14, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So get this, Paul's experience on the Damascus road is crucial to his future ministry. He needed to see Jesus He needed to hear Jesus' voice because God was calling him to be a witness of Jesus to everyone of all that he had seen and heard. And this is, by the way, consistent with what Jesus says in Acts 1-8, which is the call to every Christian. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the plan and the purpose for Everyone that God draws towards himself to receive the Holy Spirit, to go in the power of the Spirit, to be a witness for Jesus. So get this, Ananias is calling Paul to fulfill his mission as a disciple of Christ. In other words, I mean, you can say it this way, he's calling him into discipleship. 
He's calling him into discipleship. He's calling him to follow Jesus and fulfill the mission that Jesus has given him. And then look at verse 16. This is our text. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So at this point, Paul has been saved, he's been born again, he's received the Spirit of God, he's been called to follow Christ, he's, he's been called to be a witness of what Jesus has done in his life, and now he's asked, what are you waiting for? Time to be baptized. This is sort of the, the, the first door through which a disciple is to walk, a commissioning of sorts, you could think of it that way. Baptism serves as a first right into the Christian life. It's true here, it's true in Jesus' great commission, isn't it? What does Jesus say? Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We in the evangelical church, let me just be completely honest with you, we love to rearrange the great commission. We love to change the order of this. Jesus' order of this makes us very uncomfortable. We like to fix Jesus' order so that it's right. We like to think that Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples and then make sure that they know enough about me and teach them real good. And then once they've learned a lot about the Bible and they stop sinning so much, then you can baptize them. Then now they're ready. Let them sort it out first, right? They need to get it together first. And then once they're ready, then they can come and be baptized. That's not what he says. That's not what he says. Make disciples, baptize them then teach them to obey. It's not, the, it's not the example of Jesus, it's not the example of Paul. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but I mean, this is the apostle Paul we're talking about here. I'm no apostle Paul. Not at this point, it's not. This is Saul the murderer. This is Saul the religious, self-righteous zealot. He's no worse than you are, no better than you are. He's the perfect example for us to look at. Baptism serves as a commissioning for for Paul. It's after this moment when he's baptized that he moves into the ministry God calls him into. And look, we're not apostles. I'm not an apostle. You're not, not in the capital A sense, okay? So in many ways, we're not like Paul, but you're a believer in Christ. It begins here, Right after salvation, you come to faith in Christ, you receive the Spirit, you're born again, you receive the mission of God in your life. What are you waiting for? Baptism is a picture of a disciple being commissioned as a witness of Christ. It it symbolizes this moment wherein you say, man, I'm throwing all the cards on the table, I'm ready, I'm ready to go all in. He even says, Ananias says, wash away your sins. He's not talking about literally washing away his sins. Water doesn't have that kind of power, only the blood of Jesus has that power. But it symbolizes this purifying process. I am ready to be cleansed and moved into the Christian life. I'm ready to do this, right? We like to say around here at City on a Hill that baptism is the outward response to an inward change. It's an outward appeal to God for what God has already done in my life and in my heart. A person who believes the gospel, who has been born again, who has become a disciple, they are ready to be sent out as a witness, but not before they're baptized. Baptism is the first door. It's a picture of a disciple being commissioned into the Christian life. Second, baptism is a picture of a family in the flood. Now, I know what you're thinking. Baptism is a picture of a family in a flood? That's a very weird thing to say, Pastor Derek. Not a family in a flood, 
a family in the flood. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to give you a warning up front. It's about to get a little weird, okay? Um, there are just some things that are in the Bible that are weird, and, and we like to pretend like they're not there, but I don't. I think they're the best parts of the Bible. And so we're going to talk through them a little bit this morning. In order to get to the point that Peter's making about baptism, we've got to do a little bit of groundwork first, and it's in that groundwork that, that things are just a little, a little strange, and I love it. First Peter 3, Peter begins his point by talking about the work of Christ and what it accomplishes. So that's what he's actually, that's the, that's the subject matter. He's talking about the work of Christ and what it accomplishes. But while he's talking about that, like a good preacher, he goes on not one, but two side quests. <laughs> he chases some rabbits. They're divinely inspired rabbits. But he, he goes on a couple of side quests in the middle of his original point. So he's talking about the work of Christ and what it accomplished. Look at verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is what Jesus does. He suffers for sins. He substitutes himself in our place that we might have fellowship with God. And then he is put to death death physically while living spiritually. That's Peter's main point. But then he goes on a little side quest here to further talk about what Jesus did while he was physically dead. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. A lot to unpack here. Jesus is saying, during that time of physical death, when Jesus dies on the cross, there's a three-day period before he rises again. He is saying, Jesus went and proclaimed victory to the spirits in prison. Now, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? I mean, we go and visit some of you in prison, but I mean, I, I would never call you a spirit. That's a weird thing to say. Now, in case you're unsure what this means, he clarifies. These are spirits that formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, so whoever these spirits in prison are, they are connected to Noah's narrative. So let's examine Noah's narrative for a minute so we can try to connect what Peter is saying here. Noah's narrative begins in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. But if you read those first eight verses in Genesis 6, right before his part of the story, we learn why God decides to send the flood in the first place. Look at the first five verses. We'll just read those. Genesis 6, 1 through 5. I have it on the screen as well. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the, of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, side note, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time to unpack this because it would be going way on to like third side quest and we don't have time for that. But just make a note that the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, it always means angels, especially in Genesis. Every time you read that word, that phrase, it's a, it's a term for angels. 
Look it up. I don't have time to prove it. Come talk to me afterwards if that bothers you. The context of Genesis 6 then is this, that there are angels who have left their heavenly domain. They have intermarried and begun sexual relationships with human women, and the offspring of these marriages create a race of people called the Nephilim, who are ancient warriors and they are giants. In fact, the book of Numbers talks about how big these guys were. They're they're massive individuals. Now, because of this, this violated God's created order. This is not how angels were intended to live and operate. This is not how God intended humanity to live and operate. And so when we read 1 Peter 3, we learn that these spirits are angels who have violated God's creative order and thus were imprisoned for this infraction. Now, in case you think there is no way that this is true, this is not the only time these angels are mentioned in the New Testament. Peter says it again in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Jude also talks about it. Jude 6, he says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This is a real thing in the Bible. This is a real aspect of what the Bible teaches. These angels are imprisoned because of their disobedience during the time of Jesus when he is physically dead. He goes to this prison where these angels are kept and he proclaims his victory over death and sin. This is a very like ancient war picture of when a king would dominate and conquer a land, he would parade through that kingdom showing dominion over that kingdom now. That's what Jesus is doing. He is saying, I own you, I win like I said I would, and you didn't listen. So now that he's mentioned Noah, Peter goes on another side quest, verses 21 through 22. Check this out. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Some people love to point to this passage and go, aha, see, baptism saves you. They fail to read the words right before that, which says baptism, which corresponds to this. Corresponds to what, the question is corresponds to Noah and the ark in this entire time frame that he's just referenced right before that, wherein eight people went into floodwaters but were brought safely out of the floodwaters through the ark. In other words, baptism is a picture of Noah and his family in the flood. Now, for us to get this, we've got to put the pieces together so that you can see it all together. We'll start with the water, because I think the water is the easiest, most obvious corollary here in these two pieces. When you look at the water of the baptismal, you see uh, the waters, the flood waters of Genesis 9, or 6 through 8, really. You see God's judgment and wrath flooding the earth, killing every human being and all the animals that weren't on the ark. Massive, massive event of judgment and wrath. That seems like a strange thing to to think about. When you come and you look at a baptistry and you look at the waters, you, you think like, oh, peaceful, nice, wonderful. No, this is a picture of judgment, according to Peter. This is what drowned humanity, apart from Noah and the ark. So that's the water. The water signifies the flood. 
What about the person being baptized? The person in the water, who do they correspond to? They correspond to Noah and his family. They're the eight people who go into the flood waters, but they're kept alive. Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. The question is, how are they kept alive? They don't just dive in and swim for nine months, 10 months, however long it took, right? They're protected by, again, the ark. So that begs the question. When we're looking at someone being baptized, we can see the water and the water connection. We can see the person being baptized and their connection to Noah. But what is the ark? How is it represented here? How is the ark present in a baptism? I would say that the ark is faith. The ark is faith. Keep in mind, the only reason that ark, the ark is built in the first place is because of Noah's obedience and faith in what God had said would actually come true. This is a totally countercultural thing when the flood happened. You need to understand this. It had never rained in the history of the world, ever. The flood was the first rain, the first torrential downpour. It never happened. Genesis says that prior to that point, dew would well up from the ground, and this is how things were, were watered and kept for. But the great waters of above open up and pour down and flood the earth. It's never been done before. People thought Noah was crazy. And beyond that, it took years and years and years and hard work to build. But Noah took God at his word. He had faith. He did what God commanded him to do. He built the ark. And the ark is what kept him and his family safe through the floodwaters of judgment. When you get baptized, understand this, it is only a baptism if faith precedes it. It's only a baptism if faith precedes it. If you come to this baptistry and you sit down in it before the whole church, and I ask you to do what I've been asking everyone to do, which is take a look around the room, look at your church family. Look, so you're here, you're in the moment, you're looking at all of you, it's great. And I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you have not actually put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know what happens to you? You get wet. That's it. Hawaiian Falls, Fort Worth edition, right? Like, that's it. There's, there's nothing else. There's no magic. There's no mystical anything that goes on. It's only by faith in Christ that you're saved from God's judgment and wrath against sin. And faith is the ark that brings you through the floodwaters of judgment and raised out still alive. It's a strange picture to think about, but it's what the Bible teaches Baptism is a picture not only of a disciple being commissioned into the Christian life, but it is a picture of a family in the flood, wherein the person being baptized goes under the floodwaters of judgment, but the ark of faith in Christ brings him out or her out safely. Let's do one more. Last, baptism is a picture of a body in the grave. It's a picture of a body in the grave. Turn to Romans chapter six. The first part of this, uh, Paul is making an argument for why Christians should no longer live in a habitual cycle of sin. Okay, so he's not saying you should never sin again in your entire life. I mean, you shouldn't, but you're going to at some level, uh, which is why the Bible says all the other things that it says. But there is a clear difference between someone who has been born again and receives the Spirit of God. Uh, there is a life change that takes place. You're convicted of sin. You no longer live in this process, this habitual cycle of the same sin over and over again without some form of confession, repentance, and, and ultimately heart change. It may be slow, it may take a lot of time, but there should be some progress. Otherwise, I would question whether or not God has really worked in your heart. 
He's saying this on the basis that it's not easy to live in sin if you've died to sin, right? Romans chapter six, verse one and two. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, yes. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How is that possible? How can I live in sin if I've died to sin? That doesn't make any sense. So Paul is making a really clear, sound, logical argument here, right? He continues in verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I mean, that's not a, that's not a thing you'll ever probably hear on TBN, right? A baptism of death? The immediate picture of baptism in Paul's theology is, is of a grave, that you've died, that you've joined with Jesus in his death. But not only death. Look at verse four. For we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Baptism is not only a, a picture of a body going into the grave, but a body coming out of the grave, right? It is a picture of death and resurrection. Now, I, let's just be honest about this. Some of you want it to be only a picture of resurrection. Forget about death, give me life. Baptism is a picture of both. You can't have resurrection without death. It, it doesn't make any sense. You, you can't have the, the, the good news without the bad news. It's like that great song by Albert King. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody wants heaven, but don't give me death. Just bring me up now, right? You can't get the good without the bad. You can't have resurrection without death. When you're baptized into Christ Jesus, you're baptized into his death which means that your life of following him, being commissioned by him to be a witness in the power of the spirit is likely going to be marked by suffering, which is, by the way, a primary theme throughout the entire New Testament. Suffering goes before glory. It was true for Christ. It's true for his people. I read a story this week of uh, some missionaries that uh, it was actually a retired missionary who had gone back to Africa to another tribe um, that, was, that was being evangelized and they were coming to faith at rapid pace and he went to a baptism service and uh, they had dug out this little area near a stream where water came in and they were doing the baptisms right there in the local village, which is, by the way, historically a, a pretty common practice and still practiced today in lots of other parts of the world where baptism, uh, it would be done like, for example, when I was in England, there's a particular river that runs right through uh, one area of London, not the, not the Thames, but a, a smaller kind of stream. I wouldn't even call it a river. Uh, but it was a well-known area where people would be baptized. And they did that because it had high traffic. There were lots of people going to and from work and doing other things, and they would stop and see, like, what's going on here? And it was an evangelistic moment. That's why we always tell you, when you get baptized, invite your friends and family who don't know Jesus, because they're going to be evangelized at some point. They're gonna see something that's gonna connect them to the truth. Whether they believe or not, that's in the Lord's hands, but, but it's an evangelistic opportunity. And so they had carved this little area out, and uh, he said, I observed as this young missionary baptized three different guys in this tribe. 
And he said the first one comes up and sits down in the water and he holds his hand up and he says, you know, uh, baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death and raised in the newness of life and he baptizes him and he brings him up and the man throws his arms up and the whole village begins cheering. I mean, they're, they're clapping, they're making all kinds of noise and the missionary was like, wow, these people are really excited about this, right? And then the second one goes in the water, same thing. They are cheering even louder. The third guy walks up and he looks nervous as can be. He baptizes him, he comes out of the water and I mean, they begin breaking into song and dance. They are ecstatic. And the missionary, the older missionary comes up to the younger one and he says, I didn't anticipate this group of people being this excited. I mean, this must be a very like celebratory people for, for them to react this way. And the young missionary began to laugh a little bit and he said, well, there's a little more to the story. He said, I haven't really mastered their language yet. And uh, he says, they, I couldn't get them to figure out that they thought when they were being baptized into Jesus' death that they might actually die. <laughs> and so when they came out of the water alive, everyone was pumped. <laughs> like, Praise God, he's alive! One down, right? <laughs> Two to go. And when that third one came up, it was like three for three are alive. God is so good to us. But they, they thought they were going to die. And, and so it got me thinking this week, how many of us would have been baptized if we thought it would have actually meant death? How many of you love Jesus so much that you would go to be baptized knowing that it might end your life and it doesn't matter because I love him and if I die, then I go to glory with him. The stakes are high already in the evangelical church because I might get embarrassed. What if it were to kill you? What would you say then? Following Jesus doesn't mean following him in my life. It doesn't mean following him in your life. It means following him in his death and his resurrection. And if it means your death, so be it. Because it will also mean your resurrection. Some of you have been sold a hollow gospel. You just come to church, you own a Bible, maybe even serve a little bit, and that's enough. That, that makes you not a, a Jew or a Muslim and not a liberal, praise God. And so uh, now you go to heaven. Now you go to heaven. That's not the gospel. There are a lot, listen to me, there are a lot of conservative people who are still under the wrath of God. Who are still under, and when, when they die, they will go to hell because they believe that the gospel was some moral high ground and not faith in the Son of God and following him into death before life. The gospel begins with repentance of your sin that you know you have and faith, belief in Jesus Christ that he can forgive that sin based on his sacrificial death and confession of your belief. That's what Romans 10 says, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth and then submission to his lordship, which means if he's Lord and he says, don't do that, you don't do that. If he says, go over there and serve, you do what the Lord says. I invite you to repent and believe today if you never have.
If everything I just said rattles something in you, man, maybe that's who I am, then you need to repent of your sin and you need to confess Jesus is Lord and you need to be born again this morning. And if you do that, your next step then is to follow him into his death and resurrection in baptism. That, that's the next, that's the first door through which you walk as a disciple of Jesus. That's the first thing that brings you into this Christian life. And when you do that, if that happens and you do that, then all of this has such incredible significance, does it? It's a picture of something that's happening in your life. And for those of you who have been baptized and you, you have believed, when you see someone being baptized, it's a pic- you're seeing your own life, the pictures of God working in your own life. The moment you were commissioned into discipleship, the moment you went into the floodwaters of judgment and came out through the ark of faith, the moment you died and came out a new creation, conquering death, not because of you, but because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. But it only happens if you first are born again. So I want to pray, I want to give you a moment to consider that, and if you do make a profession of faith this morning, then I want you to come and talk to me afterwards. Father, we thank you for this uh, challenging, Lord, call to action and these incredible pictures of what is being depicted in baptism. When someone is baptized, it's not, it's not just a fun thing that we do that just, you know, everyone kind of gets happy about and we move on. There's, there's a story being told here. There, there's something unfolding before us that we can see that connects to a spiritual reality that has already happened in our hearts if we're truly your followers. We've been commissioned by you. We've come out of the waters of judgment through faith in your son Jesus. We're no longer under judgment. We go into the grave, but we come out of the grave as we will one day in reality because you've conquered sin and the grave. I pray, God, for those this morning who have bought into a lie that Christianity is something that it is simply not. And I pray, God, that you would give them the faith this morning to repent and believe the gospel for the first time, to truly submit their lives under the lordship of your son, Jesus. And that they would be baptized. How we love you and we thank you in the strong name of Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. A couple of things real quick. We have freedom groups coming up. Uh Uh-oh, and we have a James sighting. (laughs) I got to tell the story. Okay. Dominique, you know, works. Yeah. Sound. Yeah. He came up afterwards, and he said, my son needs to be baptized. We've been talking about Jesus for a long time, trying to get on the list. He wants to be baptized. I said, when do you want to do it? He said, right now. Okay. But he called his wife. He's going to be baptized at the end of the second service. Okay. Let's get with him. There you go. That's a great story. There you go. You got to celebrate that. You got to celebrate that. The message said, Dad, let's baptize your saved son. Let's do it. I love it. Praise God. There you go. Hey, one last thing too. Freedom groups are coming up soon. So sign up for them. Some of you have never taken a freedom group. You need to do it. It's like the the meme. Some of you have never taken a freedom group and it shows. All right. So let's... (laughs) Let's get in a freedom group and, uh, and let's work on that. Awana begins Wednesday. Get your kids here for it. It's going to be amazing. God bless you. We start Ultimate Road Trip next week. We'll see you. <laughs>